Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to seal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Then look at first. 13. Brothers, sisters, I do not consider that I have made it on my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's end our reading there. Let's pray. You pray for me, I pray for you. Let's pray together. Spirit, come. Spirit, take these words and bring them to life. Bring them to life. The truth and the power and the message of God's word bring to life in this place. Not just bring to life that floats around in here, but bring it to life in our minds in our hearing of it, but not just in our minds and our hearing because we don't need to hear another sermon. We need you by the power of your spirit to ignite it, bring it to life in our hearts so that we hear it and do it and apply it. So spirit, come, be our teacher tonight. I ask for your help. Humbly ask for your help. As we say often, this is a weighty task to just open up your word and to read it and then to explain it is a weighty, weighty task. But also it is a weighty task to just turn up in church and with an open Bible in front of us, just sit there and listen. That is a weighty task. So help us not just to be hearers, but doers of your word. So we ask for your help. Distractions, go in the name of Jesus. All the stuff that's clouding our minds, go in the name of Jesus. Struggles, go in the name of Jesus. So come, Spirit. And be our teacher 
And everyone said, Amen, Amen. Well, depending on your age, you will maybe recognize the television program that was about in the 80s or the 90s. And I remember it because I'm a kid of the 80s, and I realize that sometimes, I send this at the 5.30, a lot of my illustrations um, kind of are about TV programs, which uh, maybe says a lot about what I do or what I don't do. But th- this is about the 80s and 90s TV programs. And the 80s and 90s TV programs were way better than any of your fancy stuff you find on Netflix and social, whatever you crazy kids watch today. Back in the day, in the 80s and 90s, you had this TV show called This Is Your Life. And here is the host of that. Great, Joe. I'm, I'm sure you were wishing that you were born in the 80s so you could watch that person. So this is a person called Michael Aspel. And what he would do is he had this show where he would turn up, unexpected, to usually a celeb and would surprise them. And what they would do in this show is present this big red book to that surprise celeb and they would say, whatever the person's name is, this is your life. And then you would go back to the studio and in that studio you would get to hear the most wonderful of stories. The most outstanding of stories, the greatest of achievements, the greatest of accomplishments, the rise and rise and rise of this individual. And you're supposed to get to the end of it and go, wow, what an amazing, great, awesome person he or she is. And family would come on and friends would come on and uh, people they've worked with would all come on and they all would say the same thing. This person has achieved so much, accomplished so much, and I'm just so, so glad that I know this person. Whoever the person is, this is your life. And the crowd would woo and they would clap their hands and it would just be such a, a beautiful, beautiful night. What a great show that was on TV. Well, Philippians chapter 3, because there's obviously a link here. I'm not just talking about um, some of my favorite TV shows, just get it off my chest. Um, Philippians chapter 3 is a version of this is your life. We turn up and we surprise Paul. Paul's going about his business and we turn up and we surprise him. We say, Paul, this is your life. And we get to see some of his life. We get to see... 30 years of his life, in fact, we get to see the achievements that he has made. We get to see the accomplishments. We get to see the boasts of Paul. And it is an an outstanding episode, an outstanding episode of Paul, this is your life. But here's the thing. There's a number of people standing outside that don't like this episode. They don't want this episode to go live. So they're standing outside the church, they're standing outside the studio, and they are protesting. They are complaining. They're not protesting or complaining that someone is about to boast extravagantly about their life. They just don't like the underlying, underpinning message that Paul has in this. Because if you notice how he starts chapter 3, he starts saying that we need to rejoice. But we're not supposed to rejoice in our life. We're supposed to rejoice in Jesus. And Paul wants that to be his main focus. In fact, we've already read it. He's going to say, look, here's the stuff that I have done. Here's the achievements. Here's the accomplishments. Here's my boastings. And he's going to later on say it's rubbish. That's important. That's an important little thing to remember. And I'm giving you that little clue, that little hint at the very start. He's going to take 30 years of his life. He's going to boast about it in seven points. And he's going to say at the end of it, it's rubbish. Okay. That's a spoiler alert of the entire service or the entire sermon. But just bear that in mind. Paul is saying the greatest thing in life, the greatest thing about his life is Jesus 
in his life. That's what he wants to boast about. That's what he wants everyone else to see. And that's what he wants everyone else to take away. And that's what he wants everyone else to be inspired with at the end of the episode. But these other people that are standing outside protesting and complaining, they don't like that message. And the reason they don't like that message is because they have spent their life doing the exact same thing as Paul, boasting in what they have done, boasting in what they have achieved, boasting in what they have accomplished. And they really, really, really want you to look at them and go, wow, you are such an awesome, phenomenal person. I could never be like you. They want to base their entire identity, worth, and value in the stuff that they have done, the stuff they have accomplished in their life or the stuff that they have accumulated in their life. And they really want to go to the most extreme of steps for you to see how morally good they are or how religious they are or where their confidence in their flesh is. The group in question are a group called the Judaizers. They're a group that existed in the New Testament. And they believe in Jesus and they believe in the faith in Jesus, but they believe that you had to add something to that. So they think that just to have enough faith in, or having faith in Jesus is not enough, that you have to add to that. So it's Jesus plus my impeccable behavior. It's Jesus plus my great attendance at church. It's Jesus plus my great attendance at stuff during the week. It's Jesus plus my, I'm reading through the Bible in the year and I haven't failed yet type thing. It is Jesus plus their moral behavior and modifications. They want you to be impressed with what they are doing and who they are. Theirs is a religion of boasting. So in Philippians chapter 3, you have Paul who comes along and says in verses 5 and 6, hey, if you're going to boast, then listen to what I have done because I have something to say on boasting, okay? So he's going to list seven things that you can boast in or that he can boast in. So here is his seven-point religious record of achievement. You see most of them in verse 5 in Philippians chapter 3. So the first thing he boasts about is in his birth. You ever boast in your birth before? I don't think I've ever boasted in my birth. He boasts in his birth. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day. So it means he was born into a very strict religious family. He could boast about his DNA. Hands up if you've ever boasted in your DNA. Never. He's boasting in his DNA in this in verse 5. He is saying that he is a pure-blooded Jew. Again, in verse 5, he boasts in his heritage. Paul is from the tribe of Benjamin. And of the 12 tribes, there's two elite tribes. And one of them is this tribe of Benjamin. And from the tribe of Benjamin comes the first Israelite king, a guy called Saul. And that's probably where Paul, who used to be called Saul, originally got his name from. There's great boasting in that heritage that is there. He also, the fourth thing he boasts in is his upbringing. Verse 5. Not only is he born into the most strict and most religious of families, he was raised in the most rich religious traditions of the day. He attended all the elite Sunday schools, the best Sunday schools in the world, the best Bible classes in the world, the best religious teachers in the world. He had access. And he boasts in all of that. The fifth thing he boasts of is in his religion. He's a Pharisee, a super strict religious sect that were committed to obeying the Old Testament scriptures. They did everything they could to seek to follow it, to memorize it, to obey it to the nth degree. 
to keep every single detail of the Bible with greatest of care and the greatest of diligence. The sixth thing he could boast in is his seal. See that in verse 6. He persecuted the church, which sounds like a really strange thing to boast about. Like I think if I was persecuting the church, I'd keep that on the down low when I get to chapter 3 of Philippians. But he is such a hardcore Christian that the people he is trying to stamp out and get rid of are just people that aren't like him, that don't live up to the same standards as him, that aren't as infested, aren't as committed, aren't as devoted, aren't as obsessed as he is. And he's just trying to get rid of those weaker, lesser type of Christians and weaker, lesser types of churches. The seventh and last thing he boasts of in verse 6 is his righteousness. In terms of religion, or in terms of following the Bible, or in terms of living a good life, it says he is blameless. I, I just asked you about your day. How was Sunday? How was one day? Not 30 years, how was one day of your life? Could you say today, here tonight, that the way I have lived my life today, Sunday, is blameless. The way I followed the Bible, the way I turned up the church, the way I did church, the way I worshiped, the way I prayed, the way I read my scriptures, the way I'm doing life today is blameless or faultless. I'm not sure we could, but this guy, Paul, he says that he was blameless. And here's the thing. There is no Judaizer in Philippians, in this church plant called Philippi, no group that he's speaking into that could boast the same way as Paul could. So here's what we need to see of Paul. Paul, this is your life. He's in a religious league of his own. Like no one comes close to him. So if he's going to speak into boasting, if he's going to say something about boasting, then we need to listen to Paul. But we'll come back to that in a little minute. Because I was thinking, wouldn't it be amazing if we could get Paul to come to church? Imagine you get Paul to come to our seven on a Sunday night. That would attract a crowd. That would be like imagine you could get Paul. This guy, imagine he could just turn up and do a do a preach. That I would love to sit under that. That would be amazing. Imagine you could do a Q and A with Paul. Just sit him down here and ask him whatever questions. An audience with Willowfield, and just ask whatever question you wanted of him. Like he's one of the most famous of characters in our Bible in the New Testament, outside of Jesus. He's one of the greatest theologians, one of the greatest missionaries ever to have lived, or to, well, one of the greatest thinkers, one of the greatest preachers. Imagine we could get him as our new rector. Imagine we could get him just for one night. We'd pack the place out if we could just get him for one night. Because over a 10-year period, he traveled approximately 15,000 miles. He did that on foot or he did it on boat. He did it without Google Maps. He did it without sat-nav. In fact, he didn't really know where he was going in a lot of places. He was led by the Spirit in some of those journeys. Some of it was very dangerous. Sometimes he got shipwrecked. Sometimes he got hunted out of places. But over that 10-year period, he traveled a great distance. Over that 10-year period that he walked and sailed, he planted 14 to 20 churches. Some say even more churches. So the likes of this church here in Philippi and Philippians, that was one of the churches that he planted. He wrote 13 of our 27 New Testament books. Imagine we could get Paul for one night. Imagine that. 
Because that's the version of Paul, and that's the version of the story, and that's the version of this is your life that we like. And it's the one that we know, because we take him and we put him on a pedestal, and we think this is who Paul is. But here's the thing, and here's the problem with that. Here's the problem. That's not the first time we see Paul. Philippians chapter 3 is not the first time we see him. It's not the first time we encounter him. In fact, the first time we see him or encounter him is in the early chapters of Acts. You can read the story from Acts 6 right through to Acts 9. Very different Paul you'll see there. It's not such a good Paul, this is your life. In fact, he's not even called Paul back there. He's called Saul. Very different picture. Very different person. We're going to read some of the summary of, because there's a dramatic interruption into our Paul, this is your life. Like there is this crazy plot, crazy twist in the story that comes in Acts chapter 7. That's going to make you say, I don't think I want Paul about my church. I'm not sure he's such a good guy after all. Here's what Chuck Swindle says before we even get to introducing Saul or Paul in Acts 7. He says this, the first pen portrait of Paul or Saul is both brutal and bloody. If an artist were to render it with a brush and oils, not one of us would want it hung framed in our living room. The man looks more like a terrorist than a devout follower of Judaism. To our horror, the blood of the first martyr splattered across Saul's clothes while he stood nodding in agreement, an accomplice to a vicious crime. Saul, observing the entire episode, stood among the howling mob holding the robes of Stephen's murderers. Just let that fall on us for a moment. Let's not jump too quickly into Philippians chapter 3. Let that fall on you a moment. Let that picture fall on you. The first Christian martyr, blood splattered, and the person that's holding the coats is this young guy called Saul, the guy who calls himself Paul, the guy Paul that we've just had an episode of, Paul, this is your life. Oh, I'm not quite sure I like the way this episode is unfolding now. Listen to how it unfolds here in Acts chapter 7. I'm going to read this in the message version. It says this, Acts 7. Yelling and hissing, the mob drowned Stephen out. Now in full stampede, they dragged him out of the town and pelted him with rocks. The ringleaders took off their coats and asked a young man named Saul, Paul, to watch them. As the rocks rained drowned, and these are big, heavy, rugged Rocks. As those rocks rained down, Stephen prayed, Master Jesus, take my life. Then he knelt down, praying loud enough for everyone to hear, Master, don't blame them for this sin. His last words, then he died. Chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was right there in the middle of it all, congratulating the killers. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But first, Three, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. As we come to Acts chapter 9, the passage that Reuben was in this morning, we will see that Saul is 
literally hell bent on destroying the church. Like he doesn't want to just stand outside and protest and try to make it difficult for you to get in. Like he, he does not want you to get into this place. In fact, we would not be hoping that Saul or Paul would come to our service if we were to put ourselves tonight into Acts chapter 6, 7, 8, or 9 stuff. We would be petrified at that back door bursting through it would be Saul and his accomplices who would come in here. They wouldn't ask you nicely or kindly to leave or to get out or to shut this down or disconnect the sound system at the back. Like with brutal violence, with brutal violence, they would shut this down. They would trash this place. They would trash you. They would do their best to try to torture you, kill you, or imprison you. And here in Acts chapter 9, you have a Saul who is hell-bent on traveling to Damascus, which is a 200-mile journey. 200-mile journey. And the only reason he wants to get to Damascus is because, the only reason is because he has heard there's Christians there. There's Christians 200 miles away. So it is worth my seal, my passion, and all that is winning, all the hatred that is in me to travel 200 miles to do all that I can to find every man, every woman, every child that is a Christian and shut it down. To send my foot soldiers to smoke them out to get rid of them. Like, make no mistake about this. You were petrified at nighttime. You were petrified to meet as a church. You were an underground church or a hidden church. Or you were petrified that someone came knocking, someone came thumping, someone came crashing into your house to shut down the church. And the guy at the center of this is Saul. Saul, this is your life. Chapter 9 of Acts begins with a terrorist persecuting Christians, a brutal and violent man who sought to stamp the church out of existence. He leads his hit squad on a violent campaign of violence and hatred, and they will stop at nothing, stop at nothing to shut Christianity down and shut the church down. Paul, this is your life. This is your life. We reckon, as I said at the beginning, that Saul changes his name to Paul in around age 30. So what that means, and feel the weight of that, what that means is for 30 years, for 30 years, all Saul has done is lived and breathed religion. All he has done for 30 years is lived and breathed hatred and violence towards the church. And I know everyone in this room loves a good, like we love a good old testimony. We love a good old, once bad boy, now good boy type testimony. We love the sinner to saint type thing. Love that stuff. But would you not draw a line of where is acceptable under this man called Saul? Draw a line with him. Like, would you like him in here tonight? Would you like him worshiping? Would you like him sitting beside you? Would you like him kind of mingling with your family or mingling with your friends or mingling with your kids or just being in this place? How would you feel if you saw him with his hands in his air worshiping? How would you feel if you saw him walk in here tonight? And yeah, like he had some conversion story in chapter nine, but I wasn't there. I didn't see it. Did you see it? No, I didn't see it either. He says this. Maybe it's a ploy. Maybe it's a trick. Maybe he wants to get friendly with us and then bring us down from the inside would you trust him would you want would you want his type about here paul this is your life 
and I don't like your life. This is your life. That is who you are. You are that violent, brittle, evil person. And we don't want you. We don't like you. We don't need your type about here. If I was Saul, I'd not be boasting. I'd not be writing Philippians chapter 3. I'd not be whipping out my seven boasts. Wouldn't be saying any of that. How dare he? How dare he boast? How dare he have anything good to say for Christianity? How dare he have anything good to say for the church? Or what about the guilt? What if he did genuinely have a conversion in chapter 9? What if he genuinely does become a Christian? What do you do with the guilt? What do you do with the shame of that? What do you do when that bears down on you? Like even if I wanted to boast, even if I wanted to come to church, even if I wanted to sing if I was Saul or Paul now, like where do you get the confidence to stand up and worship or pray or run to God? After what you've done, Saul? Imagine that coming to prayer ministry at the end of church. How would you pray into that? How would you pray into that? Would you want them here? But here's the thing. Here's the thing about Paul, and it's the thing about the gospel. He sees it through a different lens. He sees himself and he sees his life through a different lens. Like, I think there's only like two ways I can think about um, Saul. Either you're going to let other people tell you who you are and remind you what you once did. You know how that is with Christianity? You, know, you ever done something that you're ashamed of and someone else knows and they just, they just hound you and pound you with that? Hunt you with that? There's either that or there also is the little voice that's inside my head. Because here's the thing, I don't need other people telling me how rubbish I am. I, I do a pretty good job of that myself, thanks very much. That's why I wanted to read Psalm 51 at the start and about our sin and about our guilt, particularly a little bit about unseal my lips. Unseal my lips. How do you unseal your lips when you are Saul and when you've lived this type of life? Well, you do that because Paul looks at life through a very different lens. And sometimes we need to see how wicked we are, how broken we are, how lost we are, so that we can see how beautiful and wonderful the gospel is and Jesus is and what he has done done for the worst of sinners. Sometimes we need to see that. We need to see that because in seeing that, we can get to see the depth of God's grace and mercy and love and forgiveness towards us. And you might not be as bad as Paul or Saul in this passage, but here's what happens. The longer you become a Christian, you just get familiar with it. And you, you begin to, you begin just to lose the wonder of the cross. You begin to lose the power of what it cost of Jesus to come and die for our sins. Paul says stuff like this, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. I press on. I press on. I don't stand still. I don't sit down. I press on. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind me, not dwelling on what is behind me, not constantly digging up what is behind me, forgetting what is behind me, I strain towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. 
In other words, Paul wants to be gripped by something. And you can be gripped by your past or your present or the fear of the future. You can be gripped by those things. They can crush you. You can be gripped by those things or you can be gripped by something else. You can be gripped by the power of God, the power of the gospel that can change and transform our lives. He wants to be gripped by the same God that grabbed hold of him. He wants to be gripped by the same God that stopped him on his tracks as he was making his way 200 miles to persecute, to kill, to torture, and to imprison Christians. He wants to be gripped by the same God who get this, who has called him and given him a message and wants to send him on that journey for a period of 10 years, traveling 15,000 miles, planting something like 15 to 20 churches, writing 13 of our 27 New Testament books. He has called Saul, Paul, and he wants to be gripped by that. And that's a starting point. Or that's the center that he spins the rest of his life around. His starting point isn't Philippians 3. Like he doesn't start with his boastings. I started with his boastings tonight. That's not where he starts. He doesn't start with his boastings. And sometimes we like to start with our boastings. Like we love a good old Philippians chapter 3. We love to be impressed with other things and other people and what stuff is going because that's a comparison thing that goes on. But that wasn't Paul's starting point or his center point either. He's not boasting in his achievements. He's not boasting in his accomplishments. He calls all of that rubbish. How crazy is that? He calls it everything he's worked so hard for, he calls rubbish. Philippians 3, 7 and 8. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else. Counting it as rubbish so that I could gain Christ Jesus. Feel the weight of that again. To work so, to spend 30 years working so hard for these, to place all your identity and worth and value and meaning and purpose into these things and then to turn around and say, the rubbish, the rubbish. How do you, how do you say that? How can Paul say that? Well, the reality is that one day everything we own and everything we have built and everything we have worked so hard for, the good, the bad, the not so good, just fades away. It vanishes. That reputation you're building, it will vanish. That life that you are building, it will one day vanish. Here's what Matt Chandler says. Everything we own is the stuff of future garage sales, junkyards, and dumps. Everything we own that brand new piece of tech you have in your hand, you're reading your Bible on. Those brand new sneakers you've on. Brand new outfit, that brand new car. Brand new whatever. Everything we own is the stuff of future garage sales, junkyards and dumps. Paul is saying the greatest thing about his life and the greatest thing in his life is Jesus. Would you say that? The greatest thing in your life is Jesus. Paul's starting point isn't even his guilt and his shame. Like he knows his guilt and his shame because we'll read stuff like 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a trustworthy saying. This is Paul saying this. And everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. 
Like that could be his starting point, his guilt and his shame and that crushing reality of what he was. Because he's quite an unusual character. He lives this really religious, moral life, but there's also this really crazy, violent part to his life as well. But he doesn't start there. He doesn't center his life on there. He knew he is a sinner, but he also knows he needs to come to Jesus for forgiveness because only in Jesus can your past, your present, and your future be dealt with. Only in Jesus can that be saved or transformed or redeemed or renewed in your life. I wonder as you come to church tonight, how do you compare to Saul or how do you compare to Paul? I'm not sure you're out killing Christians during the week. Hope not. Or we're in trouble tonight. I'm not sure you're out persecuting Christians during the week. Or imprisoning them or hunting them down. How do you compare to Saul? Or how do you compare to Paul? And that really religious life that he is trying to portray, to create, to develop, and to show to the world around us. Paul came out with stuff like this, Galatians 2.20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's dead, it's dealt with, it's over, it's done, it's finished. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or Romans 6, 6 says, we are no longer slaves to sin. It doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect or without sin. But it means by God's grace that there is a power of the Spirit living in you so that we can press on, that we can move towards, we can press on to take hold for that for which Christ took hold of you. I guess as we end tonight, I want to ask is, what are we gripped with? Our past? Our present? Something about our future? What are you gripped by, with? I wonder what voice you're listening to. I wonder what mess you've made of your life. I wonder what train wreck you might have made of your life. I wonder what of your past crushes you. I wonder what of your past prevents you from moving forward. I wonder what the volume is. I wonder have you given the enemy a seat and all you can hear is that voice of what you once were. And you just don't hear what Jesus says you are today. I wonder how ugly your sins are. I wonder how many your strongholds are. I wonder how religious you are or how perfect your life is. The beautiful thing about this story, the beautiful thing about this episode of Paul, this is your life is that if God could take someone like Saul, pursue him, hunt him down, grab hold of his life, change his life, like radically turn it upside down, call him, lead him into one of the most successful mission trips ever, one of the greatest theologians one of the greatest preachers. If he can do that with this terrorist called Saul, then what can he do with your life? What can he do with your life?
How can he impact your life? How can he change your life? And I, I really wonder what you are listening to tonight. What volume you are listening to. Whose voice dominates your world? Are you listen to the gospel. You listen to the likes of 1 John 4, 4. You belong to God. My dear children. You already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. The gospel is a message of hope and grace and forgiveness. Don't lose that. Don't overlook that. And I guess what I want to say tonight, don't allow the enemy to crush you with the guilt and the shame that is there in your life. Don't allow him to say, this is who you are and that's all you're ever going to be. You need to learn like Paul did to see things through a different lens, through a gospel lens. I want to end with this quote. It says this, it's about grace. Grace is more than just leniency or unconditional acceptance. Define grace is God's relentless and loving pursuit of his enemies who are unthankful, unworthy, and unlovable. Grace is not just God's ability to save sinners, but God's stubborn delight in his enemies. Grace means that despite your filth, Despite the sewage running through our fiends, despite our addiction to food or drink or sex or porn or pride or self or money or comfort and success, God desires to transform us into real ingredients of divine happiness. My prayer is simple for myself, for you, for us all, that we would dive into that grace Delight in the gospel where you are saved and you are transformed. So as we come to worship in these final moments, as we move into a time of response, I want us to use this time to go to war or go to battle against the enemy. I used Psalm 51 about unseal my lips. Because sometimes with the guilt and the shame of our past or our present or with the fear of the future, sometimes with that guilt, our lips are sealed. And all you're listening to is the enemy. Sometimes I stand at the front of worship and all I'm doing is just praying into something. Like at war, at battle with something. But you don't have to do that on your own. You might feel weak tonight. God is your strength. He is your help. You need to shout some truth. There's power in the name of Jesus. Say the name of Jesus. Whisper the name of Jesus. Yell out the name of Jesus. Raise a hallelujah. God be praised. That's what it means. Raise a hallelujah. Fight your enemy. In the power of truth. Sing truth. Speak truth. Read truth. It's in God's word. Know that truth. Speak that out tonight. Speak that to the enemy. Stop coming feeling defeated and feeling worn down in the power of God because of what he did on the cross. We have victory in him. Stand in that. You are a child of God. You are a son. You are a daughter of God. Stand in that confidence. You are saved. The gospel wipes it clear, wipes it clean. So let's stand and let's worship God. I'm going to pray for us.
And then we're going to move into a time of worship and response. God, as we move into your time of worship, will you help us to worship? Help us to battle against the enemy, knowing that you are the one who has won the battle. You have defeated sin and Satan and death. So I was driving to church tonight, Isaiah 54, 17. Popped into my mind, says this. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Which I take that to mean that there will be weapons that are going to be formed against us. But they will not prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. So God, as we step into worship, as we come to this time, help us, help us to raise a hallelujah. Help us to raise your name. Help us defiantly in confidence in you and in your gospel and in your truth to roar at the enemy that there is something at work in us. There is a power at work in us. There is a spirit that lives in us that is greater, that is more powerful than any enemy and every foe that we will meet. So God, lead us and guide us in these moments. In your name I pray. Amen.